Martin Luther said, as you're turning to Mark chapter 4, when they asked him to describe, what did you do in the Reformation? Because that's what we do as Christians. We don't look at the message, we look at the methodology. Martin Luther said, and I quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, which, Jared, this is your passage next week, while you slept, while I slept, the word did everything. I love that. He's not responsible for the harvest. He's responsible to be a super spreader, which uh, I called Dave Hardy before I put grass out this year, just to make sure it was the right time of year. This is my super spreader. That's as close as I get to a teaching illustration. You're welcome. Um, it's there, and now it's over. All right, so we've been going through the book of Mark, which we've said is the action-packed gospel. And in a gospel that is more comic book than it is Russian novel. What I mean by that, it's a lot of action and not a lot of teaching and dialogue. What we've come to in chapter 4 contextually is one of the largest teaching sections in the whole book. And I'm going to argue today this teaching section is pivotal for understanding all the other teaching sections based on what Jesus says about this parable in particular. And so while we've got a lot of learning from Jesus in his actions, this is the ADD gospel, the gospel for busy people, what we're actually going to get now is some of the actual teaching that does exist within the book. Chapter 4, verse 1, begins with the word again. And we said this about Jesus, and I think it bears repeating, Jesus does not come to church one time and quit. He does not sow the word in people's lives and quit. He is not one and done. He is again and again habitually teaching. He began to teach beside the sea. Right? So let's just take a pause. Some people in your life, you cannot sow the word one time in their heart and they get it. Some people that we're going to teach, let's talk about our kids. Anybody had to tell their kids not to do something one time and they were like, yes, mother, father, I'll never do that again. Right? No. We develop patterns and behavior. We've got to teach regularly as Jesus taught. Began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd. Now, this is a different Greek phrase than what has happened already in the Gospel of Mark. Previously, it's talked about crowds or it's talked even about large crowds. Now, it is adjusting that and saying very large crowds. It's intentionally saying that large crowds have happened in the past, but now the crowd that Jesus has drawn is next level. Gathered about him so that he got into the boat and he sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them. So let's pause here for just a second. Jesus um, is doing miracles. And I think in our minds, because we don't uh, see or when we do see miracles, we don't appreciate them as such. We get consumed with Jesus' miracle working power. But Jesus regularly says... The miracles are not primary, they're secondary. Literally, what the Bible is going to say is they are signposts that point us to the reality and the truth that he's teaching. So for us, we like miracles, and to God, he likes truth. So the way I would put this is, 4th of July is not about fireworks. It's about a historical event, right? And we're trying to plan, by the way, Sunday falls on 4th of July, I've already talked to we're trying to figure out what we're doing, a little special. We may shoot things with fireworks, all right? Who knows? We're Baptists. You can't control us, all right? We're not asking the government for enough freedom to celebrate our freedoms, all right? 
But like, you realize that we can get all caught up about the fireworks display, and then we miss the fact that we ever even talk about the fact that the holiday is actually about a historical event, about our freedom. So this is the same thing that happens to Christians. We pray and want God to heal a body, but do we even say, God, that signpost of healing and that miracle of healing a person, does that even lead us into truth? Right? So Jesus is about teaching, but we get caught up in the fireworks. All right? And so he is repeatedly um, teaching. Now, in our minds, if you've been up to Lake Biocito, the terrain of the sea that they're talking about, the Sea of Galilee, is very similar. You have mountains around it that dip into the sea. Jesus, we've already learned, gets into a boat. And I called this boat a portable pulpit. It's a ministry innovation. He's got a floating pulpit. I'm envious, all right? Not that I want one. Could you imagine how much more action-packed the sermons would be if we just had like a disc with float on there and like you moved around and then... <clears throat> that would be awful. And so he's on a boat. So he sits down, which is the normal position of a teacher, and he begins to teach. Now, this is a natural uh, acoustic area where he could have a larger crowd. The, the sound waves traveling across the water and then up into the hillside allowed for a larger crowd without modern amplification to hear the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is unafraid when it comes to methods to innovate, but when it comes to the message, it's straightforward biblical truth. We can change our methods, church, about how we reach people, but we cannot change the message. Everybody with me so far? So let, let me say this. Jesus does not say the eight words of a dwindling church. We way before. Is that eight? See, I don't do math. We've never done it that way before, is the mantra of a dwindling church. So, Jesus instead gets on a boat, which gives him access to people and can get the message out broader. I love uh, that James is here, because uh, from all I know, I'm quoting James or misquoting him, depending on him correct me after. Um, he said, we've not found the best way to do it yet, and so we do it every single way that we can. We haven't figured out the best way to get the word out to people, so we get the word out to people every single way that we can. Let me talk about Jesus up until this point. Jesus has not just taught in synagogues or slash churches or temples, he's done that, or seaside or houses, but he also teaches on mountains and in boats and deserts and plains and fields. He teaches at funerals, he teaches before government, Right? He preached the word, and he did. He preached the word to crowds. He preached the word to individuals. He preaches the word to the twelve. He preaches the word to the publicans. He preaches the word to sinners. He preaches the word to religious people. He preaches the word to foreigners, locals, men, women. Jesus uh, preaches to the Jews and the non-Jews, to the poor as well as the rich, the blue collar as long as the white collar, along with the white collar, the educated and the not. He preached the word with interesting uh, devices of speech. Do you realize that Jesus? Throughout the gospel, he'll command, he'll commission, right? He'll admonish, he'll exhort, he'll explain. Jesus will sometimes teach by questioning. He will quote, he will console, he'll refute, he'll rebuke. And even Jesus, I know Ronnie Foster's not here, but his name was mentioned, will teach by predicting or prophesying, if we want to use that charismatic word. All right, 
So here's the thing. I want to say this because as we were rolling up to Vallecito, if we were going to hear Jesus on a boat up at Lake Vallecito and he's out there, can we understand what John 746 is saying about what drew them there is that never did a man speak like this man. Never did a man speak like this man. Even they say, Jesus looks at the disciples when he gives them a hard teaching and says, will you leave me too? He says, where will we go? You got the words of life. Never did a man speak like this. John 21, 25 says that, just like verse 2 says, he taught many parables, many things this way. John 21, 25 says that if all the books could be written about the things that Jesus taught and did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. Nancy, you talked about the clip notes on a mission trip. We got the clip notes of all the things that the world couldn't contain the books on. Jesus. So nobody talked like this man. But the truth of the matter is, contextually, some have already accepted him and some have already rejected him. Now, it says that verse 2 taught many things in parables. Now, if you've been in church for a minute, I've always heard, and I don't know if anybody else has heard this, parables are defined as earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Anybody heard that before? Um, parable literally comes from two words, parabole, which means to throw alongside of. So if you take uh, two stories, it's almost like an allegory. You throw, throw two, a story next to what's happening in reality, and the story is almost like a hieroglyph that helps you interpret what's happening in reality. So a parable means throw alongside of. Now, let's look at the parable, and then we'll, we'll get into the complication of it. The first thing that I want you to picture here, though, for a minute, you're hearing this for the first time. I know we've already read the interpretation of it, but I want you to hear it with fresh ears as though you're sitting on the side of a mountain next to a lake hearing this for the first time. All right, here's what he's going to say. Listen. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And it sprang up immediately, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell on, among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell among good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's it. Jesus gets in his boat and he rows away. My job. Now, let me ask you this you're on the hillside, and that's what you just heard. Are you not leaning over like, what did he say? That's it? Like, that's it. Now, if you're, you've never met Jesus before, never been to church, never been to synagogue, don't know anything, you're looking at that. That's, that's the word. That's it. That's the sermon. That's the teaching. That's the illustration. Jesus rose away. You're like, no, Jesus. We're, we're going to need a little bit more there, bud. Right? Now, reads it this, he gives it to us this way, and then he goes alone with his disciples and discloses it. Do you realize that he does not disclose it to the crowd? 
And intentionally, he's going to explain that he's not telling everybody the same way that he's disclosing it to the, the crowd. Okay, like, look down at what he says. And this is a warning at verse 9. He who has the ears, let him hear. The assumption is, is not everybody has faith ears to hear. Not everybody's going to get it. Doesn't that feel weird in our seeker-sensitive evangelical culture to just kind of like let it hit that not everybody's going to get it? Like they're not. Let, let's make it more complicated. And when he was alone and those around him with the twelve... So here's the thing. I've said this before. He has circles of one, twenty disciples, seventy. He has multiple groups of disciples. So there's a group around him with the twelve. So we see that this is the inner circle, maybe a little bit larger than the twelve. He said to them, uh, the twelve asked him about the parables. Right now, now listen. You have a Bible and you see the interpretation. And sometimes we dog on the disciples. Right? It's like, oh my God, like why can they not understand what Jesus is teaching? It's so simple. Read two more verses. Two more verses haven't happened yet. But I'm going to argue, I, I totally get that the disciples have no idea what's going on here. Track what, I'm, I'm going to try to let you feel it the way they feel it. They asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you it has been given. That's a grace thing. It's given. Not earned. Not because you're smart, Matthew. Given. The secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables. So that, and he's going to quote Isaiah here, they may indeed see, that is they have a witness to them, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. What? Come on, we give the disciples a hard time. Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? No one understands what you're saying. Teaching in parables so none of them will know what I'm saying. What? Brother, you've got to help me out here. I thought you were supposed to explain it to us. I feel worse off than the crowd did. And then he goes on, 13, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? So in some way, house church leaders, listen to this. This parable is teaching us why you don't understand any of the rest of them. This is kind of a parable that explains what's happening when other parables hit people and they got nothing. Here's what's happening. Parables are a filtration system that in one group of people... They are enabled to hear because it is grace given and God disclosed. And in other people, because they love their sin, it is a judgment against them that they can't understand the Bible. Theologians all throughout church history understand that one of the marks of a true Christian is that they are enabled to understand the word in a way that the world just simply does not. That this parable hits people, the word hits people, and we in our mind only think of people that accept the word. We never think about people that in their rejection of the word, it is a part of their judgment. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here when he quotes Isaiah 6. Let me, or I, I quotes the prophet Isaiah. Do you guys remember in Isaiah 6, the Lord is in this holy temple high and lifted up? 
And God is like, all of his glory displayed, and the prophet sees it, and he says, who will go for us? Who will go preach for us? Isaiah, he looks around, he's like, I'm the man. God, I'll go preach for you. He says, I'll go share the word. What does God say to Isaiah? You're going to preach to a hard heart of people? Nobody's going to listen to you. Slowly, Isaiah's hand starts to go back down. Doesn't, it, doesn't God tell the prophet, go preach, be faithful, but their hearts are going to be hardened and ain't nobody going to listen to you? Well, how would God know that unless he's sovereign over salvation? Unless God is sovereign over who is disclosed and enabled by the Holy Spirit to know the word and who is not. So, here's what verse 11 is saying. Those that understand our grace given, those on the outside, their sin won't let them understand. The mark of a true Christian, one of the gifts that God has given us in His grace when He saved us is faith to understand the Word and repent. For those that are outside, I, there's no other way to explain this, but it's the hardening work of God in judgment against those that will not be saved. In Exodus chapter 8.32, the Word comes to Moses and the Word comes to Pharaoh. In Moses' life, even reluctantly stuttering along, he receives the word and responds in obedience. When the word comes to Pharaoh, the scripture says in Roman, or Exodus 8.32 that Pharaoh hardens his heart against the word of God. Pharaoh says that he hardens his heart. In Exodus 9.12, at the point of Pharaoh's rejection, the scripture doesn't say that Pharaoh hardens, it says that God hardened Pharaoh. Some... Hear the word, believe, understand, repent, and some reject. Now, verse 13 says, if you can't understand this parable, it explains in some ways all of the parables because it is a filtration system. Let me put you down into the warning of this so that we can feel this for a second. Do you realize how dangerous it is to come to church all the time and hear the word of God preached and not respond to it? Do you know how dangerous it is to come to Bible study after Bible study, Christian thing after Christian thing, hear the Word of God, and walk away as though it means nothing to you. Do you realize the hardening that can happen in a... Someone, we've been there before, someone that's just sat there underneath it, right? And they've so callous themselves to obedience and responding to God and repentance that they're worse off? See, the same word either helps us or it hurts. Now, that's the tricky part, but let's get into what it actually says. Verse 14. The sower, he's going to explain it to them. The sower sows the word. Now, let's pause here. I want to make a couple observations. There is absolutely no adjectives about the sower whatsoever in this parable. There are no descriptions of the sower in this parable. I'm going to argue it's, the, it's better understood as a, a diagnosis of the soils. So here's my thing. We don't know if this, it's not necessarily, it says a sower, it doesn't say the sower. It's Jesus, it's another preacher. Somebody goes out and sows the word. We don't know if he's got overall jean shorts on. Farmer Jesus, right? You can't find him on farmersonly.com, just throwing it out there. You can't, it doesn't describe the sower whatsoever. It doesn't know if he got a corn cob pipe 
doesn't say what kind of it doesn't say if he uses his left hand or his right hand. It doesn't know if he's got one of those uh, Han Solo messenger bags, seed sowing sacks. It doesn't say anything about it. it. doesn't say if it's behind the back, like he's throwing the seed with a little jazz on it there. It doesn't say anything about the sower. It just says that he almost seems irresponsibly to just throw seed out as wide as he possibly can. The sower goes out to sow and sows the word. That's it. I mean, basically what we know about the sower is that he sows. The word is the seed. We learn virtually nothing else about that. We know that the seed is the word and its loaded potential. Seeds are DNA, it's information, it's data, it's code, it's life. But no adjectives, nothing beyond that. What we see is a breakdown in a discussion of the soils. Because it's, um, here's maybe uh, a little bit of introduction about souls. One thing that I learned as I moved to Colorado, just as anybody could understand that soils produce different things. For instance, I didn't think that in Oklahoma things grew particularly well until I moved to Colorado. In Oklahoma, because it's so humid, tornadoes are coming, all right, you, you can put things in the ground and it just kind of comes up. You don't got to put a ton of effort in it, right? I moved out here and I remember looking at a house with Isaac one time, and I was like, what kind of yard does it have? It has, we got this thing called Colorado Native out there. What's that? Uh, that's, uh, that's rock. Surrounded by more rock with some desert vegetation. Right? Things don't grow here. You've got to put moisture in the ground. Like, if you've got a nice yard full of grass, you've got some intentionality going there. Even worse, you can go down to Brazil. Their soil is so rich it's like a biodome. You put anything, that's why all your coffee comes from there, right? And other substances that we won't talk about, all right? Because you could grow anything there. So it's not like this is like, like hard to understand for people that, like different soils produce different things, but he's going to go a little bit further in describing what these soils are. So let's look at these soils, but here's the thing that I'm going to say. In my heart, I feel like the Holy Spirit put this on this week. Every single person here is one of these four soils. Really, there's six soils, but let's just say there's four types of soils. Every single person here, right now, is one of these soils. You're here in this text. Every single person here is one of these soils. And I'm going to say, maybe like Jesus, be careful how you hear. And I, like preachers, we're judged with a double judgment, stricter judgment for how we teach. And that's absolutely appropriate and real. But I don't know if we understand that we need to be careful how we hear. But Jesus is going to expose some things about us as hearers here. And you're here. Sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. Where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So here's the thing. The picture of the birds hitting the path 
It's like a hard asphalt. Like if you've been uh, backpacking out and you've ever backpacked and you realize where the, the trail's just been so beat down, it's like hard as marble. It's like a seed that hits that. And what happens is the birds see it and they come down. Now at the same time, it's so, I'm so glad Dave's here. I called Dave when it was still snow on the ground. I was like, Dave, is it all right if I put seed out on the deal, on my grass? And well, yeah, go ahead. It's fine. He doesn't care. All right. And so I got out my super spreader and put the seed in there. I didn't know that seed comes in blue, but I went and bought seed from like the true value and it was blue. I was like, well, that's curious. <laughs> Masanto's already got us in the, they're in the grass business or whatever those people that are genetically modifying seed. I don't think it came out the earth blue, all right? So I'm out there spreading my seed. And these rats with wings came down. I fed a whole flock of migrating birds. I got like four pieces of grass left, right? Now, for some of you, you're like, I don't think of birds as demons or the devil, you clearly didn't grow up on a farm where you had one of those chickens. Anybody grown up around a chicken that uh, like attacked you as a kid? Or how about this? You know that a goose is basically just a deviled chicken? In my mind, it's just a bunch of geese coming down, taking the seed of the word. And I'm just like, boy, Satan's real. Hissing geese. They come down. The birds snatch the word before it ever gets in and penetrates. Right? And he says, this is what Satan does. Do you believe that spiritually, at times in your life, and maybe even now, the reason why you're not going to remember the scriptures we went over today by the time you get home has nothing to do with your memory. It has to do with demonic forces saying, I'm not going to let that take root in your life and I'll snatch it up before you even get home. And you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to make you care about downloading an app on your phone. That's how unspiritual the church is. We can sit under the preaching of the word. We can come to today to communion and hear the gospel proclaimed in communion and literally, by, the, by in an hour, we've walked out the door and it's completely gone. Why does the word escape you like that? Why does, I mean, like, look, as a preacher, like, I, I brought some sunflower seeds. These are the only seeds we had at our house because um, we're getting ready for baseball. Like a bunch of idiots. Well, anyways, um, so, got, so I got a seed here. What, like, think about me as a preacher. Like, I'm putting all this effort in. Lee's going to come up and do communion. He's going to tell you about what the. I can do all the effort in the world. Toby, look, come up here. Let me throw the seed out. I'm just joking. You know what I mean? I'm just going to beam him with it as hard as I can. One, I'll throw my arm out because it weighs like nothing. All right? I could throw this as hard as I want, and it just bounces off. Some of you won't get home. And the word will have literally done nothing to you today. Some of us are unresponsive, hard. Let's just be honest. Some of us came to church today and we had no intention of responding to the word. We were just coming in a building. 
Because we were supposed to, right? We didn't come with the intention to hear the word and then to respond to it. You could not care less. You are a footpath that every good thing that you receive from God is given up to Satan. God does incredible good stuff to you. Incredible good truth has been preached to you in your life. And it bounces off you and you offer it up to Satan like a footpath offers a seed up to the birds. Here's maybe a good description of your soul. There's too much traffic. Too much traffic in your soul. If I was to plant this seed and to take it with my Patrick Mahomes arm and slam it into the asphalt in the highway at 501, and it, the miracle that I could put this through the asphalt before a bird gets it and it dives down deep and actually gets root and becomes a plant, it would be a stinking miracle. That's the impossibility of preaching. Unless God enables. It's impossible. Some of us came into the word, come to the word today and we have no intentions of responding to it absolutely at all. And Satan is going to come five minutes after your quiet time Tuesday morning and the word is going to have no effect on you because you need a scarecrow out there to run it down. I always remember back when we were in Europe People loved to feed the pigeons. And our kids were small. And they would run in there and try to tackle the pigeons. And it just offended every European there. Right? We need something to shoo away the demonic. Verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. The rocky ground is described as the ground that has tribulation, persecution, and it eventually falls away. It is an impulsive that responds shallow and superficial. The rabbis used to say about Israel that when God was dumping out the rocks across the earth, they dumped like, they actually spilled some and dumped them all on Israel. They have a limestone that exists just below the surface. So a lot of the plantable soil is just above a layer of limestone. And so what would happen is, is that the seed goes into the soil, and because the roots can't go down, the plant shoots up. And it's got some flashiness, like it looks like it's healthy. But what happens is the sun comes out, and because it lacks a root, and it can't get the nutrients that it needs to combine with the sunlight, it withers instead of flourishes, and it dies. And so it ends up producing nothing. It goes down. But it doesn't have any gospel nutrients to mix with the sun's heat. Do you realize that the word of God in the heart of a believer mixed with trials and persecution make for a strong Christian? But trials and persecution, when someone has no gospel nutrients, will wither them up and they will die. Here's what these people do. You ask them if they want to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You say, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to give your life to Jesus? They say yes and they mean no. They'll say yes 
but they'll mean no. Time proves all things. Church, I don't, I don't know how to say, but you're going to be laughed at. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to be fired in some jobs today. You're going to be hated. You're going to be mocked. There's going to be things that you're not going to be invited to. And the reality is people pleasers cannot suffer persecution. And so they're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. We've been there before, haven't we? People come to church and they look like they're in and they sing a song. Hebrews 6, they taste of a heavenly gift. They act like persecution comes and they're gone. What happened to so-and-so? They're not going to church anymore. They're not in community. Oh, they don't, they don't follow Jesus anymore. They've moved on to the next hobby. They've moved on to the next entertainment. That cost them nothing. Where the commitment is not take up your cross. And I, I would talk about in ministry, this is one of the most discouraging things we face. Because you see people and you get excited about them and you, you, it looks like they're springing up. And the next thing you know, they're shady. And they're gone. So maybe, Christian, let me ask you this. What could make you turn your back on Christ? What persecution? What tribulation? Because in the moment where you answer, what can make you turn your back on Christ? I would argue that's your God. And you will wither and you will die serving those idols. If Jesus for you is just a fad, and you're just buying time here until you move to the next hobby or next entertainment, when persecution comes, things will be revealed. See, Jesus is using parables as a filtration system to understand why people accept and why people reject. Uh, let me get to the next one. Verse 18. Uh, is it heavy enough yet in here? All right. Uh, and the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, and the word here is choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, Desires for other things. If you want a great description of the church in the United States right now, that's a threefold description. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things, proving unfruitful. Here's how I would describe the thorny ground. And maybe this is you. It's the crowded heart. Preoccupied, infested with other things, drained of all its life. The ground is restricted to only support so much life. And this competition for resources of the heart, this other things, becomes to it an antichrist. I've taught you as we went through the book of Revelation about antichrist. Anti does not mean just against. It means that but it also means antichrist, also means in place of. 
So we say antichrist, we don't just mean against Christ, we mean also in place of Christ. These other things are in the place of Christ in this ground's heart. And I think any of us that have tried to grow something before understand nothing grows faster than that which is unwanted. Right? If we went out and tried to grow grass, we would struggle. But you know what? You try to grow some weeds, I'm a top-notch, shouldn't say weed grower, that's weird in Colorado. Um, I'll come back to you on that one. All right. Um, Toby's a top weed gr- uh, <laughs> I've got to use somebody else's name. That was party foul. All right. If you try to grow weeds, they grow up all the time. Right? You can't stop them from growing. You try to grow some Bermuda, good luck. Right? Nothing grows faster than what's unwanted. How about this? Anybody realize how fast sin grows in your life compared to righteousness? It proves unfruitful. It says here that the word is choke. Now, I try not to talk about jujitsu at the pulpit too much, but we just went to Salt Lake City uh, a couple days yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> it was a long drive, a lot of desert, all right? And we went up there to a jujitsu tournament. Jiu-jitsu is a grappling sport. Uh, it's like wrestling, but you uh, get to do arm locks, make the other person tap out, which is incredibly satisfying. You can choke them, do different things. I didn't compete. I just took the kids up there. The Rodericks went. Uh, the Renners went. Renners didn't even come back. They just stayed up there. We left them as missionaries to the Mormons. All right. Okay. So they, they go up there and you go to this tournament. And in jujitsu, um, you could do arm locks, which basically hyperextend an arm or like some different things. They're incredibly painful. You're like, you let your kids do this? Absolutely. All right. Because self-defense and kids need to learn how to do hard stuff. We just like grappling. It's a tough sport. But there's something different. What happens is, in jiu-jitsu, they have this phrase called, the choke is king. The choke is king. Because what happens is, you meet people who are double-jointed. Anybody know that creepy youth kid that, like, they do their arm like this, and it's like, that's so gross, right? These double-jointed people that, like, touch their... It's just, it looks like it's not right. You might know what I'm talking about. So if you grapple with that person, and you go to try to twist that limb... They're just stretch Armstrong. They, they gumby it, all right? But nobody escapes choking, right? Like there's this flaw in this human body build here we got. You have two arteries right here in the neck, and, and like your arm, some of you guys got big old biceps. If someone tried to like hurt your arm, you just flex, like, I don't, I don't want to show off here, but um, you'd flex, and you could stop somebody because you're strong, all right? Here's what protects the artery in your neck. Skin. That's it. That's your defense mechanism, is a thin layer of skin. So if someone gets behind you, and they cut one artery here, another artery here, uh, Lee, let me, let me choke you out real quick. Um, <laughs> volunteers are few and far between today. You know how much fun it would be to put somebody unconscious at the sermon? Very, all right? Um, but you put somebody in, and what happens is when you choke somebody from behind, if you can cut off these two arteries, they go to Neverland, all right? It turns the computer off. doesn't matter who you are. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care what kind of neck you have. These two arteries supply something very vital to the brain, blood, all right? And you just slow that up. You, tra- you slow that traffic up enough, that person will drop like they're hot, Okay? 
and they will go, they will go to Perg, they will go to the nether, nether regions, all right? And so what happens in jujitsu is if you can't beat somebody because they're lost, all you got to do is choke them. And if you choke them, they will either tap or they will go to sleep. And so people tell, when they train people in jujitsu, they say, listen, a lot of these moves are good, but choke is king. Because you will cause somebody to go to sleep. They just don't have a defense against this. It says here that the thorns are coming, and the word that it uses is strangulation. It's the anaconda choke, right? And, and I don't know if there's a better picture of some of our faith in here than choking. Like the nutrients that need to go to our brain to make decisions are getting cut off because of strangulation, because we're pursuing the things of the world. How rare do we hear in churches about the dangers of worldliness? Worldliness will choke your faith until it's unfruitful. Listen, I don't know what to do with which one of these are actually saved and not saved. I'm not making any sort of judgment on that. I've heard almost all theologians are going to argue the first ones are not Christians, the other ones are. I, I just let it hit me the way it hits me that says, I've been this soil before. Anybody else? Well, you're worried about your taxes and where you've got to get your kids in school and you're worried about money and your job and you're, you're worried about this and you're worried about that and you've got cares of the world and all of a sudden, you're just unfruitful for the kingdom. Has anybody been there? Like, I've been this soil it's not that I don't have a heart for God. It's not that I don't want things. It's just it's strangled. And I look around my life for fruit, and I'm like, where is the fruit? All the time, I'm giving all of my blood and my energy and my vitality and, my, and, and the things that God is new, like vivifying in me, all the life that I have, and I'm giving it to the world. I'm supporting a bunch of thorns. We are one of these soils today. Proves unfruitful the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. I don't know how to put that any other way. That's a brilliant way to describe my life at different seasons. It is, hasn't it been yours? Verse 20, but there are those sown on good soil. They're the ones that hear the word, and they accept it, and they bear fruit. Oh God, don't, don't you want that to be you? They hear it, they accept it, that's a humility. That's a humility to accept it and to bear fruit. This next part's ridiculous. I didn't know it was ridiculous because I'm not a farmer. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, I had to look it up, all right? Not in a farmer's almanac. I looked it up, you know, online like the rest of us. A normal crop was maybe 7, a good crop was 7.5%. 10% and, and you're buying dinner at Texas Roadhouse, okay? Like that's next level, like we're celebrating at the Sizzler, all right? Like 7.5 to 10% is like a good harvest. What is going on with 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold? That's unbelievable. Something unnatural is happening if that much is being produced. Exactly. Something supernatural is happening if that kind of stuff's pouring out of your life. Look over in John chapter 15. I really do this, but I think this passage is just, it's unbelievably helpful. John 15, 
John chapter 15, 1 through 6. I am the vine, Jesus said, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So the one that does not bear fruit is taken away. The one that bears fruit is pruned so that it bears more fruit. So there's three types of, even of the good soil, there's three types of soil. There's 30, 60, 100. This thing is teaching us that God does not care about your comfort. He cares about your pruning such that you bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Look again at how the word is central in the word. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You don't know who the good soil is that bears much fruit? That same person right here. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Do you really believe that? That without Jesus, you can do absolutely nothing of eternal consequence. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Same language. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Flip back over. I, I don't know how to say this, but it's a miracle that any of us, it's a miracle of grace through the gospel that any of us produce fruit, period. You don't produce good works without Jesus. You don't produce good works without the gospel. It's not about your works. It's about what his work has done in you. Do you realize in the next parable for next week, it's going to say that a seed was sown and while people were sleeping, it brought out fruit. Right? If we were pagans, we would say, you know, like nature did it. Right? Or magic. But the truth of the matter is, the fact that the seed produces anything is the grace and the power of God. I, I don't know how to. It's so overwhelming that 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold would come out of this that it makes you look beyond the soil to something more. And that something more is what God has done. I, that's as simple as I can, I can put it. He is the reason that any of us would produce one-fold, much less 100-fold. If you've walked with him, you know. You don't trust your own works. You trust what his work in you is doing. 30, 60. I love what Paul says when they try to baptize in the name of Paul or baptize in the name of Cephas. Or He says, what is Paul? What is Cephas? One plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. Isn't that what you want? Verse 9 is an earnest admonition. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But that's kind of the problem, isn't it? We don't really hear because we've got these kind of soil things going on all across this room. One last story, and then maybe we're done. Um, we've got five kids, and the last one coming up, I was told all the time that your last kid, you spoil them. And I purposely tried to say that I'm not, um, even though I got called out the other day, no big deal. 
I think we have this bottom kid named Abraham. Abe, baby, baby, Abe. I can do this because he's too young. He's not even paying attention right now, I promise you. Abraham. And I'm just going to say that maybe there's a member of our family who I'm married to who might be spoiling this child. All right? He gets away with things that our first couple, we, no possible way, right? We're, I mean, part of the reason we're looking into adoption and praying about that is we just got to fix number five, okay? By putting him not at the end, all right? And I told Whitney that if she does not change her ways, I'm going to start quotas for spanking this kid, right? Like, just on a schedule. I don't know what you did, but you need it, okay? And he's, he's, kind, he's so much personality. Kids all love him. I came in, and he has this thing that he does that is, uh, it's really cute and hard to get onto him for. Just be 100% transparent. I came in the other day. I heard something in the kitchen. Chair move across the floor. Red flag number one. You don't need a chair for anything. Nothing above your level is for you. Chair moves. I was doing something, so it took me a minute to get in there. I come in. I sent Whitney a picture. Just a butcher knife into an apple. Okay? That's, that's, that's the picture. I tag your kid. Right? That's your kid. Butcher knife and apple chair. He didn't even leave the crime scene. He is in the corner, and this is his posture. That's it. I look at the apple. Multiple knives out. Apparently, butcher knife's the only thing for an apple. All right? Right tool for the job. Chair. Kid in the corner. I say, Abe, what are you doing? He doesn't move. Right? He reminds me of that Guardian of the Galaxy, Drax. I've gotten so still that you forget that I'm here. He just, he just stops. and he, the, Abe, what are you doing? No response. Just deadness. Abe, what are you, do, what are you doing with this knife out? Nothing. Right? And you just want to run over there and like grab him and not shake him, like hug him. And what are you doing, son? Right? Like what's going on? Like don't touch the knives, right? He thinks that by covering his eyes, like I, I can't, can't see you, apparently can't hear you either. Right? It's full Garden of Eden. Like you tell me the Bible's not true. That's, that's fig leaves right there, folks. Right? Isn't this exactly what Jesus says? That our sin, we think it covers us up, but it doesn't change the reality of what the Father sees. God sees our hearts in ways that we don't see our heart. God sees our actions in ways we don't even see our actions. I heard this quote, and I think it's brilliant. Either the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. In this soil... The word is keeping them from sin, or sin is keeping them from the word. What kind of soil are you? If you had to be honest, and don't, you don't have to say it out loud. I know we're at church. Everybody, everybody got to walk out of here saying they're the good soil. Not only the good soil, I'm the hundredfold soil. Yeah, God help us. Okay. Um, what kind of soil are you? I love this parable Jesus says about a seed. He says, unless a seed dies, falls and dies and is buried, it, it, like it remains alone. But if it falls and dies to itself, it'll produce great harvest. The thing I love about Jesus, he is the word who died to himself 
resurrected and propagated and put the word of God, the seed out all over the world. The picture is that each one of us is a soil, but what's keeping you from hearing? I want you to pray for a second. Just between you and the Lord, if it helps to bow your head, if it helps to get to your knees, helps you to stand. In your quiet times, in your Bible study, in your house church, at our gatherings like this, when the word comes in your ears, when you look at it with your eyes, what kind of heart does it find? Is it a footpath that's hard? That Satan is snatching up? Is it a rocky soil that springs up a lot of show, but ain't got no roots? That even as we speak is maybe withering? Is it thorny ground? where the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things crowd out the heart where it proves unfruitful? Or is it the good ground that's humble enough to accept the word? Willing to bear much fruit? If you're here, and you'd say, I need Jesus to till up the soil of my heart. I've never trusted Him. I've never let the Word come deep down in me and take root. If that's you here, I, I just want to invite you to call upon Jesus' name. He's the master gardener. And I don't care what kind of jacked up, occupied heart that you have. He can clear the ground. The Bible says that those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm not going to sit here. I'm not going to manipulate you. It's between you and God. But if you've never trusted Him, I would invite you to do so. And if you need help, I'd invite you to call on Him. Christian, if you're here and you're looking around your life at the fruit, And you, you need to have some hard conversations with Jesus. Would you do that? He can yank up some thorns. He can break some rocks. He can plow some soil. He can get rid of some birds. Maybe the last thing we need to do is run on to another worship service, another Bible study, another thing 
and hear a whole bunch more Bible that we're not going to respond to. If you're here and the Holy Spirit is convicting you to respond in a particular way, just between you and Him, would you do that? Set aside your pride. Dear Heavenly Father, I bring nothing to the cross except the sin that made it necessary. I've walked in service after service and been any number of these grounds. And without your husbandry, no truth would have germinated in my life and nothing would have been produced. And yet, God, I come here honest as I know. needing tilled all over again, needing pruned all over again. God, I want deep roots. I don't want superficiality. God, I don't want to be so caught up in the American dream that my spiritual life is choked out and I miss out on the kingdom of heaven here and now. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would be good ground, humble, receptive to your word, and that they might produce a crop of 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And it would be so unexpected and unnatural that nobody gets the credit but you. Father, would you open our eyes and open our hearts and enable us to see your word. Remove the sin that so easily blocks. Implant the seed of your word. Bring life. I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. If you stand with us, are we going to communion? Lee, would you come and lead us in the gospel?